0: This isn't just about personal development. This Mm -hmm. is about being effective as an organization. This is about effectively meeting, uh, improving the bottom line, meeting all the demands that organizations and their their leaders are under.
1: Welcome to the Reboot Podcast podcast. This is Dan Putt. You know, I've always been referred to as a very nice guy. If I flip back through 34 years of my life, there's many moments where people said, hey, you're really nice. And I've always been the guy who wouldn't rock the boat, who'd rather be quiet than disagree, who'd rather be liked than to be right. Somehow being described as nice always really bothered me, kind of stung as an insult. I'm starting to understand why. As many here at Reboot, I am a huge Parker Palmer fan. There's been many moments in my life where his words have moved me deeper into my own self-awareness. And this conversation with Jerry is really no different. There I was, listening to these two elders and close friends talk. And Parker at one point said, People come to a moment of understanding that no punishment anyone could lay on them could be greater than the punishment that they lay on themselves. Like conspiring in their own diminishment. Those words, conspiring in their own diminishment, hit me like a thud. I haven't been just conspiring in my own diminishment. I've been owning it and leading it. Even here at Reboot, which is a space as welcoming as any, I find myself continually holding another part of myself back. Once again, I value my likability, my safety above all else. And now I see, at some point, some part of me, what is often referred to as the loyal soldier, stuffed my full voice into the shadow in order to keep me safe and accepted by others. At some point, I learned that being liked was the only way to be safe, and the only way to be liked was to put everyone else's voice above my own. You know, usually like to find conclusions for these introductions, but truthfully, I don't have one here. This conversation is still working me, and I'm working with it in powerful ways. I'm really thrilled to welcome back Parker Palmer to the podcast. He's a man whose teachings mean so much to us in our work here at Reboot. And as always, when these two get together, the conversation is packed full of deep lessons on leadership, the shadow, the importance of relational trust, and the incredible power present in community. This episode will leave you with new questions and powerful answers about yourself, your role in organization, and the power you hold but may not yet accept. If you could only sense how important you are to the lives of those you meet, how important you can be to the people you may never even dream of, there is something of yourself that you leave at every meeting with another person. Fred Rogers.
2: Hey Parker, how are you?
0: Good, Jerry, how are you doing? It's good to see you.
2: Oh, good, good, I, I'm, I'm really well. And uh, I'm just, uh, you know, as you know, I'm looking forward to the summer and I've got some sabbatical coming up, which I'm really excited about. I'm actually gonna take both July and August off, so. Oh,
0: that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. this is the fifth year in a row I'm doing that. So that just feels... Uh...
0: It means you're getting wise, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have this younger
2: brother named Paul who, who teaches me about the wisdom of taking time and actually being in solitude. So I, I, I won't quite be fully in solitude, but I will be going back to Tibet.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. That that's wonderful. But the question, of course, is why is it that this younger brother of yours isn't taking two months off himself? <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am gonna take August off.
2: <laughs> he hasn't learned from his older brother. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: That's true. I gotta start listening. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so well, thank you again for coming on. And you know, as as we've talked about, um the last conversation that we had was just so helpful and we continue to hear people talk about it and and I actually assigned it as homework so that's how gruesome it is. No, just kidding. Um a lot of the boot camps, especially because I think our dialogue around what does it mean when a leader is really in my language using the organization as a means to work out unresolved issues. Right. Not consciously typically inadvertent um, and then, you know, to use language that you've used, reading from their shadow, if you will. Um, and that dialogue that we had was, I think, really helpful. Um, but as we've sat with it, and and as you know, the the audience's podcast gets really interactive with us. They, they, they sort of, they lob questions at us, and that oftentimes will lead to somebody coming on the show and talking about things. One of the things that's really been coming up for a lot of us is, so let's take a step back and not necessarily focus on the leader per se, but to use the terminology, perhaps the lead, those who are within the organization, those who are within the community, those who are within those groupings of of people, the organization. And you know the question that we're really grappling with is you know to start off with is, how does the organization, how do, how do I, as an employee, respond when my leader, whether it's my president or my presidential candidate, we won't go there, <laughs> or, <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> or, or my CEO, whomever she may be, is not, uh, hasn't done their work and is leading from that place of shadow. And, you know, to to extend it a little bit more, how do I work within an environment that may feel really toxic for me?
0: Right. Well, you know, to say the obvious, that's a really tough situation because any effort to uh, help the leader look at herself or himself in the mirror and say, look, look here, can you see your shadow at work? Yeah. It's likely to result in punitive action. It may not happen right away. The fallout may not happen right away, but sooner or later, it's likely to. And everybody who's worked in an organization understands that and tries to walk around that landmine. So I think that, that you know, th- this is one of those cases where it's really important to try to get it ahead of the train wreck the best you possibly can there are some situations I think that once you've, you've stepped into the abyss, you know, getting out is really, really, really tough and maybe impossible unless you just move on. But it is possible to step back from the abyss. And I, I think the word that you and I both care about in that regard is, is community. I think the question becomes, um, how do you build in an organization the kind of community that that creates more resilience in these personal encounters, especially of the third kind or the tough kind.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and in that sense, get ahead of the train wreck so that when, when something really, really tough happens, at least some of those muscles of creative encounter have been, have been strengthened. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think good leaders... Are aware of two things. One is that whether they know it or not, they do have a shadow, mm-hmm. and and the second is that they need to build um, a trustworthy network of relationships where people can tell them the truth. Um, and I and I, you know, we one way of getting ahead of the train wreck is that we need to teach more would-be leaders, potential leaders, um, the importance of of creating that kind of feedback network, that yeah. those kinds of trustworthy relationships, because it, this isn't just about personal development. This mm-hmm. is about being effective as an organization. This is about effectively meeting, uh, improving the bottom line, and meeting all the demands that organizations and their, their leaders are under. Uh, you know, we can we can look at this from two points of view. What does a good leader do
3: mm-hmm. to
0: create this possibility? And what does an employee do who's not in positional leadership to call critical issues to the leader's attention? Mm-hmm. Um, even knowing that people who are living from their shadows are highly defended people, Um and, and what are, you know, what are some of the ways around that? So for starters, that, those are just some opening reflections. Uh,
2: your comments remind me of is that, In John Adani is to bless this space between us. He has that beautiful, so many blessings, so many beautiful blessings, but one of my favorites is a blessing for a leader. And there's a beautiful line in there that says, may you be surrounded by good friends who mirror your blind spots. Yeah. You know, and and what you're speaking to is getting ahead of the train wreck by the leader allowing that, um, because there's power there, right? And the power to allow this or not allow this in that defended place, but, but to allow, to create the conditions by which good friends can mirror back blind spots.
0: Right, A- absolutely. And I, I've actually come to think, uh, based on extensive reading and all the research around relational trust, as it's been called, Hmm. and and how relational trust is the primary driver of mission success in a wide range of organizations, I've actually come to believe that part of the definition of leadership in our society has to be putting priority on on the building of relational trust. I mean, that's what friends have between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I have had many, many conversations in recent years where we've helped each other look into our own shadows, especially at those points where our personal journeys and professional journeys have been side by side or converged in certain ways. And, and, and it's really been you know very edifying for me and in many cases liberating. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to see myself more clearly through the eyes of a friend, but if you want to be an effective leader of an organization, you know we understand from the get-go that you're not going to be everybody's friend, right, in the classic meaning mm-hmm. of the term. But if you want to be a good leader of an organization, you are going to put high priority on building relational trust, simply because the research tells us that's essential to mission success and and among other things relational trust is going to give you those partnerships in which people say look Jerry or look Parker something's going on right now that i along with a bunch of other people are really confused about and and uh, i i really need to have an open conversation with you a non-judgmental exploratory open conversation in which we try to understand where this is coming from. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because in an organization, when you're dealing with the unknown, with the X factor, with the guy or the gal behind a mask, Mm. all, you know, things go from bad to worse pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, you know, part of my motivation in in exploring this is the questions that have arisen really around when things go from bad to worse. Um, and, and, you know, and in a sense, I guess, what I want to encourage us to do is, if we can, speak to those who perceive themselves as not having enough power. Mm-hmm. And so, in my experience, when the leader, you know, as I like to say, uses the organization, to resolve their unfinished business, right? And use it um, narcissistically, perhaps, to, to project all of their issues, not consciously, not willingly, but to recreate family of origin issues, perhaps, or to recreate and then setting off a triggered effect within the organization where all of this is starting to happen the level of toxicity in the organization starts to go up. Right. The level of suffering starts to go up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in agreement with you that, that the leader who, who is able to surround themselves in a relational trusting environment is going to end up with better results. But even leaving that aside for a moment, I think that there's a moral and ethical responsibility here because the, 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 the consequence of not doing that is pain and suffering
0: right. needless
2: needless pain and suffering
0: right right and I, and i you know i guess you know one way to put the question i'm holding and i think it mm-hmm. is important to look at it both from the moral ethical angle and from the practical outcomes angle mm-hmm. Is that if you've got a board who's holding a leader accountable, which question are they most likely to raise? Mm-hmm. That's true, <laughs> and, and it's probably the practical outcomes question. Um, you know, uh, even though it, once we begin to understand our shadow, we pretty quickly see that it's it's moral and ethical downside for us and for others as well. So. From the point of view of people who perceive themselves as powerless, step number one, I think, is to remember that you're not powerless. I mean, you have to reframe your own reality. Um, there is, of course, a, a, quite a tradition in the leadership literature uh, of talking about not only positional leadership, but non-positional leadership, mm-hmm. and in school reform, an area that I'm fairly familiar with. Mm-hmm. There's been a tremendous amount of talk about how critical it is for teachers to step into non-positional leadership, to stop understanding themselves simply as teachers or functionaries in the best sense of that term within the educational system, but to also understand themselves as leaders who know things that positional leaders, especially outside the school positional leadership, leaders like politicians who's decisions have heavy impact on the schools. The teachers know things that these other folks don't understand. So, you know, number one is, is for all of us uh, who care about this stuff, and I think actually who care about our own lives and our own futures, um, to, uh, to reframe the whole question of, of power and powerlessness. I've done a lot of work in higher education over the last forty years, and I keep hearing faculty, you know, tenured faculty with PhDs, people in midlife and beyond, saying, "Yeah, yeah, these are great visions, but I am powerless to do anything about them." And I, I've asked, I ask a very simple question: powerless in comparison to whom? Mm-hmm. You know, are you are you powerless in comparison to the single mother? In the inner city, who's raising three children and holding down two jobs? Um, you know, on and on the list could go, and and I think when we start, you know, looking at our own lives with some perspective um, on the range of uh, on the continuum from powerless to powerful, we start to see some new possibilities for ourselves. But I think step two after you reframe. Yourself from powerless to having at least some degree of power is that power comes from community. Mm. Uh, you know, you, I'm not talking about the kind of power that allows someone to walk into the boss's office and say, You know, you got to come to Jesus, man, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> never <heard> Buddha, mm-hmm. <laughs> or right, or somebody, <laughs> you know, you got to get straight with yourself. Um, I, I'm I'm that's a rare individual, and that kind of one-on-one encounter with someone who's lost in their own shadow and highly defended, I think, rarely has good outcomes for anyone. Right. Um, except maybe the exercise of a certain moral righteousness on the part of the confronter. Um. It, so by coming into community, I mean, my, my scenario, the scenario I have in mind is the individual in an organization who's struggling with having to work in the shadow side of this leader is um, clearly not going to see things for him or herself. Um, this person identifies other significant actors in the situation on the staff, as it were. In the workforce, come together in, in in, and this is a critical step. in a, In a way that says, "Look, I want to have a life giving conversation about this. I'm not looking for a fight. I, this is not a gossip session. Um, I'm looking for a creative intervention that will liberate all of us. And I just need to, in, in this confidential setting, this." trustworthy setting. I need to put my cards on the table. Here's what I see going on. And I believe that if a group of us who are really critical to carrying forward this, this organization's mission um, were to sit down and create safe space for the leader, mm-hmm. we could have a conversation. But it, it, it's going to require um, a communal representation, not just one person. Um, I, a little story comes to me, Jerry. For whatever it may be worth, it's a little off. It's a little off the, the beaten path, but I think it, it speaks. So, um, I was working with a faculty one time over in a five-day workshop where they were complaining bitterly about. And this was not the whole faculty. this was the people who were interested in transformation and change to serve their students better. They were complaining bitterly about um, another group of faculty who were using faculty meetings to simply create toxicity. Mm. That, that was clearly over a period of time it became clear that was their agenda. they didn't they were they were up against. They saw themselves as up against the president and the board and all that. And they, um, they weren't interested in rationally pursuing any sort of proposal, either yay or nay. They just wanted to get snarky and snide about mm. everything. Mm. And it was every faculty meeting was a <clears> Thompson <throat> group. And these, these non-positional leaders who weren't at the front of the room running the meeting said, you know, we have no idea what to do about it. Well, I thought back on Saul Linsky and I thought back yeah. on certain nonviolent techniques of social change. And I said, well, here's something you could try. It would take a little courage, but uh, you're all well protected in your positions. The next time this starts to happen, one of you should just stand. And then shortly after that, someone, another one of you should stand until finally eight, 10, 12 of you are standing. Hmm. When someone says, why are you standing? You know, that's not our procedure here. If we want to speak, we raise our hands. You need a spokesman who will say, I'm standing to protest the level of toxicity in these meetings, which is getting us nowhere. And every time it pops up, we are going to stand in silent protest. I just, got, I just got chills up and down my spine. They, um, mm. they, they reported to me six months later that over a period of time, the situation had improved. Mm. Um, I, I don't know the long-term outcome of it, but mm. they said, this is working. This has brought people's attention mm. to what had heretofore just been a game. And mm. we're actually now having serious discussions about serious issues a lot more frequently. And the level of snark is a lot a lot lower
2: I, I love the story and and in the story, I'm hearing a few additional things that I want to bring attention to and and in a way they they sort of dovetail with my own experience in working with organizations, as you know, because we've had separate conversations about the the notion of servant leadership, and one way that I like to think about servant leadership is to is to visualize it by as As an act of flipping the right side up pyramid upside down
3: mm-hmm.
2: right and placing the leader still at the apex of the pyramid, but really in service too and 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 when we talk about that organizationally, a lot of times what happens is um, individual staff members will fixate on the empowerment that's implicit in that flipping. Mm. But what they don't necessarily understand is that there's also an accountability mm. that flips around. And, to, and in a sense, what you were calling forth with that story was, was the notion that we are all responsible for the effectiveness of that group. Right. We're all responsible in some way or another, and I think back to, you know, you, 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 your, your first step was to, was to reframe it and to really, without chastising, I liked your language a lot, you didn't chastise and say, well, you know, hey, listen, you've got more power than you realize, you know, in a finger-wagging way, but you asked uh, an important question, which was in relationship to whom, um, in comparison to whom are you powerless? and that requires a kind of self analysis and an introspection and and because in a sense my complicitness in not taking accountability or holding myself accountable for my role in the organization could be coming from my
0: shadow exactly exactly so say more yeah (laughs) well absolutely i mean you know one way i put it sometimes is that what our world needs most of all is more Mm grown-ups right and it and you when you're not being a grown-up you are operating out of your shadow right that shadow can be defined in a variety of ways but one of them has to do with you know the the pu-er-eternus the eternal boy or girl Mm always wants to hide behind some sort of protection mm-hmm. rather than taking on his or her responsibilities. And that, that is in fact, behavior, the, 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 the behavior driven by the assumption that I have no power mm-hmm. is in fact behavior coming out of, of one's, one's shadow mm-hmm. as a non-positional leader. I mean, stepping into position, non-positional leadership is challenging and what I tried to do with those faculty was to, to recommend or to, or to describe one of the least risky things that they could do, but even it was a risk, right? Because the first couple of times out, there was a lot of scoffing at mm-hmm. the people who stood, like that's ju- silly juvenile bullshit you know, right, 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 and and uh, don't imagine that you're you know you're launching a new civil rights movement or something by by your non-resistance, you know, mm. your simple witness. But the, the fact is that if you have the guts to do it, witness works over time. But I think I think the strategies have to start at a fairly low threshold um, of of doability. Because because people are intimidated by their own by their own power if they haven't assumed it already they're intimidated by by the power that they do in fact have. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I I agree and and I'm not going to remember it properly but there's that beautiful Nelson Mandela quote about the thing that we fear is. The power that we actually have. We
0: actually have, right. And and that's, I think, a classic movement insight. You know, the move, movement leaders have a genius for helping people who, you know, from the outside would look totally disempowered. Mm. They have money, they have no weaponry, they have no army, they have no access to status or rank or influence to help to convince these people that they have power. And, and as I've said, when I've written about movements, they... But they have the one power that no one can take from us, which is the power of the human heart. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's back to a theme we've talked about before, which is Mm -hmm. living an undivided life. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm. I'm, uh, It's it's what I call the divided no more decision, or the Rosa Parks decision. Mm where you say I'm no longer going to speak or act on the outside in a way that contravenes some fundamental truth that I hold on the inside.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I'm not going to build a wall between inner truth and outer representation in the in the world. Um, now, in the case of movements, that inner truth is can usually be expressed as um, I am a full and worthy human being, and not. You know, the half a human being or less that, 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 that this society treats me as. Um, so, again, when I ask faculty powerless in comparison to whom, <laughs> and then, you know, we can talk about examples of movements where people have taken enormous risks mm-hmm. with their fortunes, their their freedoms, their very lives. Um, you know, it, it really helps people to reframe uh, their own lives uh, when they can make those comparisons freely and start to see, I'm not as bad off as I, as I thought I was.
2: I think that there's another reframing that's available here. And that's reframing. I'm going to go back to something you said before. You said witness works, witnessing works over time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think if we reframe what the word works means in this context right. and we add for example standing up for oneself and living divided no more yes you those faculty members who stood may not have actually changed the outcome of yes. those meetings or the or the or the manifestation of those meetings but if we go back to that example for a moment think of the pain that they felt as they sat in those meetings Time after time, watching this, being triggered, being thrown back into their childhood, watching again and again, for example, perhaps their parents fighting in this awful way, feeling made small, right? Even in that moment, in that simple instruction that you gave them, I'm imagining there's the capacity to live divided no more,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: to find that inner sense of definition of power right and to define success as something beyond changing outcome or resolution right Right. but changing the circumstances
0: absolutely i mean i'm really glad you picked up on and elaborated on that Uh, again all kinds of things come to mind as they always do when i'm talking with you you know a simple way to tell that story is to say they stood up for themselves.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: They stood up for themselves. Their hope was also to serve a larger end. But, it, but when you stand up for yourself, there's an inherent reward. Um, one of the things I've said about movements, when I've written about them, is that the, the whole logic of punishment gets transformed mm-hmm. for people who take acts like this and, and the way it goes is they come to a moment of understanding that no punishment anyone could lay on me mm-hmm. could be greater than the punishment I lay on myself by conspiring in my own diminishment,
3: mm-hmm.
0: conspiring in my own diminishment. And I think if you think about, you know, anybody who's taken a courageous decision of a personal or public sort coming out as a gay person. Standing up for yourself as an African American in a fundamentally racist society, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera.
2: You're looking at or or being transgendered or being and and choosing to use the facility that matches your identity. Exactly. Who you are, living divided no more. Please.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that any people who fit that description, and there are lots of them out there. You know, this, this kind of courage is not lacking among us. Um, although sometimes for people like me who haven't had to be courageous in that particular way, right. like male, straight, well-educated, middle, upper, middle class. Plenty of privilege, both of us. It, it, can, it can easily look like there's no courage out there because I don't see it among my people, right? But it's out there big time. And I've learned a lot from just paying attention to it. So yeah, absolutely. The the this this decision that that um, I, I won't conspire in my own diminishment, I think is is absolutely critical. And it, and what you said, Jerry, reminds me of what Gandhi once said about um, expressive versus instrumental action.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: He said instrumental action, which aims at achieving an end, is very likely not to have lasting power, or even achieve the ends it sets out to achieve. One of the things we know about human history is that there are a thousand unintended consequences yeah. <laughs> to every to every really smart strategic decision, right? Right. Um, Gandhi said, what's changed human history more often is expressive action. People simply saying, here I stand, I can do no other. <laughs> This is my truth, and I'm going to represent it in the society. And and what those faculty did with each other, which is what has to happen, I think, in any organization, is they, one or two of them, for starters, and this was before they met with me, because by the time they met with me, they had self-identified as a group of people who shared this concern. One or two of them initially, sort of raised a flag in the midst of their faculty colleagues. And, and they said, this is what concerns me right now. This is what I care about. Mm. Is there anybody else out there who wants to rally under this flag? Mm. Um, and and that, that act in itself is the one we, we don't think enough about. You know, I, I have all kinds of stories from the work I do about the physician who works in an HMO where he finds himself right on the edge of violating his Hippocratic oath two or three times a week. And he thinks I'm talking about a real guy who attended a retreat and the scenario unfolded. He thinks that he's alone in this. But at this retreat with 25 other physicians, he comes out with this inner truth, this very deep and compelling inner truth, which has really been vexing him and learns that everyone in the room has their own version of the same story. This empowers him to go back to his healthcare institution and run that flag up Mm -hmm. and say, anyone else out there feeling the way I feel? If so, let's meet. They met, and in that case, the long-term consequence was creating from this group, this subgroup, a uh, penalty-free zone for the reporting of medical errors, without which hospitalization itself continues to be something like the sixth leading cause of death in our society, right? Yatrogenic right. disease, and medical errors, and so forth. If you can't report that stuff, if you've got a bunch of people just quietly covering each other's rears on that, on those errors, you'll, you can't introduce the systemic corrections needed to make hospitals safer places. So these physicians figured out a way to make incremental progress on that, on that issue. Um, here, here's another thing that I've been thinking about mm-hmm. as we've talked, and it goes back to your moral, um, moral and ethical point um, about, about living in one's own shadow and hiding out there, as it were. I'm thinking of a William Stafford poem, which I think you love as much as I do. It's called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. Yes. Uh, It has the image of the parade of elephants in it. And if one elephant loses the way, the others won't find the park and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, in that poem, he has lines, and I'm not sure I can quote them directly, but the the gist of it is these lines that have have long haunted me. He says, it is evil and, and perhaps the root of all evil. To know what happens, but not recognize the fact. Mm-hmm. That's huge. So Rosa Parks knew what was happening. And if, if she hadn't recognized the fact and acted on it, and, and I think that's what Stafford means by recognize the fact. She just kept that knowledge tucked away. She would have been in some way complicit in evil. And, I, and part one of the great, parts of the Rosa Parks story, is that she refused to be complicit in evil or in injustice or in wrongdoing. She she basically said, I'm no longer going to cooperate with the racist rules of this society Mm -hmm. because on the inside, I know myself to be a full human being. Well, on, on, on a smaller scale, on a scale that has perhaps less social scope or even sometimes moral urgency, this is the dynamic inside organizations. It was the dynamic inside that faculty. The people I met with on that faculty knew what was happening, but they had not found, found a way to recognize the fact mm. and to recognize it publicly, to act on it uh, in a way that was potentially creative and life-giving, which this turned out to be. But if that's Gandhi's expressive act. You know, They, they didn't stand up and say, when asked why they were standing, well, we have a technical fix for this. It has to do with reshaping our agenda and, you know, redesigning our meetings. They simply said, we're standing to witness to the pain that we're in over what's happening at this university among our collegial community. Mm-hmm. So... Well, I, I, I think in your, in your example...
2: Here again because you know I listen to you and you spark me and you listen to me and I spark you and this is one of the reasons why our relationship is so joyful really I think in your example both of the faculty and Rosa Parks I'm going to expand the Rosa Parks story and link it back to the faculty Rosa Parks wasn't the first right in fact, Rosa Parks did not operate as the solo hero no. that we often will make her act. This is not to take anything away from her act. Right. Right. Uh, Gandhi did not act as a solo hero. Martin Luther King did not act as a solo, right. solo hero. The faculty members did not. In fact, there was community right. implicit in that. And, 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 it doesn't take a stretch of imagination to imagine the community meetings that were happening in the South, which Rosa Parks attended.
0: Right. And, and in fact, the community meetings that had been happening for five generations in Rosa Parks's family and the family of every African-American enslaved human being in this country.
2: That's right. And so again, without diminishing the bravery and courage of any individual, to expand the notion and recognize that the that being in a relationship within community, being in relationship with peers, being in relationship with, with with fellow sojourners. Yes. Right. On that journey of people being together creates something that enables us not only to confront our own fears, which again are often mm-hmm. based out of the shadow or based out of guilt and shame from our childhood. Right. Right. I'm going to be thrust out of the tribe, but to be able to stand forth. Uh, you know, I, we at reboot are very, very fond of quoting this lyric, no, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And lately we've been adding to that and it's, "No, you're not alone. And you can't do it alone.
0: Right, right, right. And that's, a, you know, that's another sort of fundamental reframing, right? Mm-hmm. Not only do I have power, but the kind of power I have is not Lone Ranger power. That's right. It's, it's communal power. And, and so there's a basic reframing there from this kind of Western concept that the individual is the atom of all reality. Right. The notion that community is the weave or the fabric. Of all reality, which is a lot closer to the truth, (laughs) connectedness is the weave or the fabric of of all reality, and it's 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 just interesting the ways in which it's a stretch for people to go there when they're when they're mulling and sometimes really wrestling with what do I do in this Mm -hmm. in this circumstance, but I think for those faculty once they had the experience of standing together. And feeling the support that came from the fact that they were standing together and not alone, that notion of the power of community that they had access to settled in on them in a new way. Mm-hmm. It became more of their operating reality and toolkit, mm-hmm. and uh, they were able to carry it forward in a variety of ways.
2: You know, there's there's another line that you know you and I. We've talked a little bit about this before, but I like to to suggest to organizations, especially those that are just knee deep in working through their issues, Mm -hmm. and it's there is no them, Mm -hmm. only us, right? And one of us may be operating from a place of discomfort that's causing challenges for others of us, right? Right? And what are we? Together, going to do about the parts of us right that are out of sync with themselves.
0: Yeah, this is this is a, an organic body that we're talking about, and mm-hmm. we have to see it that way. And Jerry, I, you know, I, in my reading of the Rosa Parks story, mm-hmm. um, that was uh, she understood this this truth that, that you just enunciated, in that she understood, you know, there is no them because the breakthrough moment comes when you realize, oh, the fact that I've been complicit with mm-hmm. this evil or with this injustice
3: mm-hmm.
0: means that I, in some small way, have contributed to it. And I can no longer look at them as the primary agents behind this, this awful stuff.
2: That's right. And, and I can no longer look at the bus driver Who's enforcing a law right. as an agent of evil? As right. much as I see him as much a victim yeah. of the evil system.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it changes everything. I know a part of the Rosa Parks story that I love to tell is that is that when the police finally came on the bus after a bit and walked to where she had kept her seat, they said to her, "You know, if you if you sit there." If you stay there, we're, we're going to have to throw you in jail. And one has a variety of, one can imagine a variety of responses at that point. Her response was classic. She said, you may do that. <laughs> you may do that. And I adore that response because if you unpack it, what she's saying is, um, what could your jail of stone and steel possibly mean to me who has just stepped out Mm -hmm. Of the worst jail a person can have themselves in, which is a jail of their own making. Mm -hmm. I have just liberated myself Mm
3: -hmm.
0: from all of that. Mm -hmm. And your jail really is meaningless to Mm me. So you may do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you get to the place where you give, where you disarm the, quote, enemy Mm -hmm. by giving him or her permission Mm -hmm. which I think is a wonderful place to be in life. You may do that. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's <laughs> that's a very threatening. <laughs> it's a very powerful statement. It's a powerful statement.
2: Exactly. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that we start to, to to close. And and for me, one of the things that I'm really connecting to is, you know, I have this profound belief that one of the opportunities that presents itself to us in work generally is an opportunity for greater self-actualization.
3: Right.
2: For us to be, become, to simply become more human, right. or, or as we were saying before, to, to grow into our adulthood and to confront the pieces that, that either make us complicit in creating conditions we say we don't want or, or conspiring with our own diminishment.
0: Right
2: as well as the ways in which we refuse to acknowledge the power or refuse to see what's going on, as well as our inability to stand up for ourselves and live divided no more. There's an opportunity, even in the most toxic environment, it seems.
0: Well, maybe especially in the most toxic environment, because this is like the crucible that mm-hmm. Jung talks about, mm-hmm. in which individuation happens as long as we understand that individuation doesn't mean divorcing yourself from community, which I think it has often been Mm -hmm. taken for. Um, So yeah, I think that's very rich ground. And I also, I'm gonna flag a notion for maybe a little bit of conversation here, but maybe for another podcast. Mm -hmm. And that is that what we're talking about, of course, are difficult conversations. The first difficult conversation is a bunch of people, uh, is someone calling a bunch of people together and saying, do you see it the way I see it? Mm-hmm. Because that conversation could go south pretty quickly into a gripe session or a gossip session or something that's really mm-hmm. not life-giving that contributes mm-hmm. to the problem rather than helps alleviate it. Um, and then there's the risk you take by, you know, speaking truth to power, as mm-hmm. it were. So... The, the notion that we could talk about at some point is how do you create safe space mm-hmm. for hard conversations? And I know that safe space is something that has real meaning for both you and me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and our work, my work at the Center for Courage and Renewal, your work with Reboot, has a lot to do with creating safe space for people to make themselves vulnerable, mm-hmm. to forge relationships, to have hard conversations about real things um, not just tips tricks and techniques you know for organizational <laughs> development but it comes from in here it comes from the human heart mm-hmm. it comes from the soul from the psyche from both the light and the shadow in us and when we go, when we take a deep dive into that stuff that's a real conversation that, that a lot of people don't want to have or are afraid of having, um, or maybe sometimes have tried to have, but then found themselves violated. You know, that's mm. there are people who've been burnt by this kind of thing. Mm. So, um, so I, I think it would be a wonderful uh, addition to our agenda at some point to talk about how you create safe space, and I know that we both have thoughts about
2: that. I I think that's a wonderful idea, and that means that I get to have another podcast conversation. (laughs) It's always delightful. You know, what I would would say is, it reminds me, there's a talk I've done called Being Fierce, and meaning be fierce, not ferocious, and um, there are three, what I refer to as magic questions, the first is, what am I not saying that needs to be said? Mm-hmm. What's being said that I'm not hearing? Mm-hmm. And what am I saying that's not being heard? Mm-hmm. Nice. Right. And, and, you know, one of the ways, I think, to cut through some of that most challenging work environment, just generally, is to really first begin asking those questions of oneself. Yes. Right. Then asking in the group yeah right what's not being said at our company
0: yeah
2: what's not being said is that we're not being treated as the full people that we are right right and and there's an opportunity there amen so once again my friend what a wonderful
0: conversation yeah thank you jerry it always works out that way you know (laughs) um,
2: it's like it's like it feels a little bit like jazz where you go, I go, you go. I. Go.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, a little bit of righteous horn. To that's right. A little that's right. You know? So exactly. the, the bottom line is we must keep meeting like this. <laughs> you got it. You got it. I will hold you to that. Thanks, Jerry.
1: So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode from links to books, to quotes, to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together.